Big Band Tuesday is back. A momentary hiatus. It's back here on Halford and Brough, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Israel Fair. Filling in, Halford and Brough brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Uh, we're coming to you live from the Kintec studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Nick Shook of NFL.com is going to join us. and In fact, he is on the line right now, so we'll get right to it. Nick, thanks for doing this as always. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's our pleasure. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to chat with you a bit about the the running back holdout situation around the NFL anyways. And then I wake up to the news this morning that Saquon Barkley ends his holdout signs, a one-year deal with the Giants. And, you know, from my perspective, it's hard to see this as a win for the running back community, given it is just a one-year deal, you know, even with incentives not worth that much more than what the franchise tag would have been. What is your reaction to uh, the news of Saquon Barkley's deal with the Giants? Yeah, it's worth like roughly a million dollars or less, uh, and that's if he maxes out the contract. It's up to $11 million with incentives. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's an interesting examination of – how folks are kind of spinning it, depending on who you talk to, because, um, you know, the, the the narrative over the last three weeks has been that the running back market and all these running backs have, have been very upset about their reality, which is that they're not going to make cash in like they once would or like other positions do because of the nature of their position and how players just don't last as long as their position. And teams have come to realize that it's bad business to extend most running backs. But the way that this is spun in, in certain markets is that, uh, oh, surprise, he's actually not going to hold out, you know, he's, He's going to show up day one of camp and everything's fine. They threaded the needle, that type of thing. Um, it's it's an interesting examination of is it worth it? Because the franchise tag doesn't offer you security necessarily, but it does guarantee a certain salary number that I'd be curious to see if he actually hits that salary number with this. And the, and the flip side of that is that it would increase his franchise tag value for next year based on a, a per-year average. Among all the top running backs, you know, the fact that he's getting that money um, and it's not through the franchise tag, he could make more next year. Over the two years, if he maxes out his contract, he could make more money. But is it really a win? It feels like a waving of the white flag to me or at least some sort of compromise uh, where, you know, two sides are look like they're about to go into a, a drawn-out battle and, and at the last second, the 11th hour, they just make it up. You know, they make up and, and everything's fine. They all go home to their respective sides. It's um, it, it doesn't do much for the running back camps. It's not like he went and signed a one-year $16 million deal. That would be big news. Mm-hmm. If he signed a two-year $25 million deal, that would be big news. It's not what it is. So it is still a bet on himself. Um, he's not tied to the tag like he would have been prior. The Giants, you know, oddly enough, could tag him next year and wouldn't have to pay the percentage increase if they wanted to. Um, it's a preservation of, a, of an ability to maybe maximize his value, even if the value isn't there and the security is not going to be there. But for for talking as tough as he has and as a lot of the running backs did, I, I was a little underwhelmed. The long-term value of running backs is obviously, you know, you laid out a bunch of the points there as to why we are where we are. But I'm curious, short-term for Barkley and the Giants next year, what is his value to that team? Uh <laughs> His best case scenario is he runs for 1,500 yards, leads the league in rushing. He scores 15 touchdowns between running and passing, or running and receiving, and uh, 
and the Giants have no choice but or some other team has no choice but to you know break the bank for him. Not necessarily, but you know when it comes to running back scale. Uh, and sign him to a multi-year deal. It's just that at his age, you know, he's not old, but he's not a rookie level young. He's been in the league for five years. So uh, at his age and uh, considering his injury history, and, and which, you know, kind of helps with the whole, well, the wear and tear on the body, the tread on the tires, maybe there's not much left. He should have some more because he missed so many games for a couple of years. But at the same time, he was dealing with injuries. So it's kind of a, a wash at that point. Uh, you consider all those things, he's just still not going to make the big time money, the big salary, the big contract that a Todd Gurley or a Devontae Freeman got. Those are the guys you want to blame running backs, by the way. Those are the guys because those are the last mm-hmm. two guys that got massive deals and did not live up to them. And it kind of scared the rest of the league into realizing we don't need to pay these guys this much money to keep them. And now we're at a point where the NFL knows you can replace running backs with younger guys with B. John Robinson, who's the best in their class. If you have to have a top 10 pick or somebody later and get similar production from a couple of guys than you can from one. And the running backs know they don't have much that they can do about it. So it, for the you know, best case scenario for Saquon is he puts up those numbers. He may, he signs a two, three year deal. That's worth some serious money, but I don't think it's going to happen in New York. Now with Daniel Jones making the money he's making. Yeah. The running backs have been very public kind of about this, this idea that they're being disrespected or people don't understand what they bring to the game. And, you know, I kind of look at it and say, I don't, I'm not sure it's disrespect as much as it is just teams acting rationally within the system, within the CBA and the salary structure of the NFL, is there a solution, for lack of a better word, to this problem that would see that would kind of see running backs maybe get more fairly compensated or allow them to cash in without completely upending how the rest of the system works in the NFL? Well, yeah, I mean, because signing, yeah, well, a few years ago, everyone was like, hey, running backs aren't going to the first round anymore. What's going on? Oh, it's the devaluation of the running back. But Every once in a while, you get a player like a B. John Robinson, like an Ezekiel Elliott, who goes in the top 10, who's worth that guy, who is an instant star and is also not worth a long-term deal yeah. because oftentimes those guys just run out of gas. Like it, It's unfortunate, but you know the, the 30-year-old wall is a very real thing in the NFL, and if you get to 26, 27, these teams are not going to be interested in paying you multiple years. Uh, so I think that the one thing you can do is shorten your window before you're up for your first contract. I don't know if you can do this position-based, but the rookie scale uh, for, for salary with the draft, you know, it made sense at the time, and I think it still makes sense for a lot of reasons. You know, it eliminates a lot of the holdouts, especially the ones that set rookies behind the eight ball, cause them to miss a lot of camp. They never catch up. Quarterbacks, you know, Brady Quinn's of the world, for example. And, and suddenly – uh, they never become the player that they were anticipated to be because all because they were holding out over money and their agent was playing hardball or whatever it was. So that solved that. There's not a lot of room for negotiation other than on guaranteed uh, money through a signing bonus with a rookie deal. But when it comes to running backs, if they're held to the same standard as every other position, their value is just going to be less on the open market because they're going to have to go through those four years. And if they're a first-round pick, they have the fifth-year option built in. You come out at 21 years old, 22, you're 26, 27 years old, you're never going to cash in because you're too close to 30 years old. So shortening that window for running backs on contracts, some sort of provision where running backs are drafted in the first or second round, can their, their contracts don't have to be the same length. They can be the same money salary scale-wise, but they should be able to get out after year two, year, or not year two, but year three. You know, Take it back one year to allow them to kind of balance the market. And I also think we'll see a bit of a course correction or a market correction as we did in the opposite direction where you got the big deals of Gurley and, and Freeman years ago, and then you got – you know, no running backs of quality getting money. Dalvin Cook, Kareem Hunt, Ezekiel Elliott, Leonard Fournette, uh, mm-hmm. those guys are still available. 
uh, I think it's a unique circumstance that that type of talent is still available. I think we come back toward the middle before long. And, and it's really only a hot topic because it's the summer and, you know, we've had three <laughs> weeks where nothing's gone on and running backs have something to complain about. Well, yeah, that was the thing, right? The the Barkley potential holdout was going to be one of the, the big stories heading into training camp now that that's been settled uh, and we are getting close to training camps kicking off here and preseason just around the corner. What are you looking at around the league as being particularly interesting at the moment? Oh man, that's that is such a carte blanche question. Uh, I mean, there's a number of things. I, the Jets stay atop the list because they're going to be on Hard Knocks, Aaron Rodgers, and you know that whole thing. Um, we're not going to get away from that anytime soon. The Washington situation with the new owner now. Um, I was surprised, you know, to hear Josh Harris talk about kind of give a non-answer on uh, the nickname of the team, which just changed. They're like, well, we'll let the fans, you know, decide. Like, could they change again? Like, that's obviously happened this summer, but that just kind of piqued my interest. Um, it's, I think it, there, there's a, a tremendous amount of storylines um, throughout the league that, you know, I can't wait to see what the Lions do. Can they be more than a one-hit wonder? I personally think the Giants aren't going to be as good as people anticipate. Uh, can the Eagles be good again like they were last year and getting the Super Bowl? Can they keep it all together? You know, those guys are all a year older, including a lot of those key veterans. How's the AFC North going to shake out? Um, I think Pittsburgh's going to be people or be better than people realize. Um, I think they're one of the toughest divisions in football. So uh, it's it's going to be there's plenty to pay attention to. Guys who are reporting, you know, Josh Jacobs and his whole contract situation, similar to Saquon Barkley uh, with the Raiders. And Saquon didn't do him any favors, by the way, signing that deal uh, with the guys who are also on the tag. Tony Pollard in Dallas, how's he going to fit? You know. Um, He's the lead back now. He's been a favorite of mine for the last few years. But there's a number of things that we could run through that, uh, you know, you just look at. It's the start of a of, of like crazy time for me, and it's the start <laughs> of everybody's favorite part of, of the year. For yeah, sure. it's exciting to see the, the camps getting going. And, uh, you know, we're always especially interested in the Seahawks up here. What, do you, what are your kind of big picture thoughts and expectations on the Seahawks going into the season? So at what point do we talk about the throwback uniforms? Do we do that now? I mean, sure. You can lead with that because they're it. fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're, they're excellent. Um, that, that's probably one of the uniforms I was looking forward to most seeing. And this is, by the way, the summer of uniforms. Everybody's got a throwback. Everybody's got an alternate. Everybody, and they all look better than they did last year when they just tossed out random helmets to pair with uniforms. Uh, uniform evolution in the NFL, it, it's, it's kind of, well, an evolution and a, a look to the past at the same time. It's great. But um, the Seahawks, I mean – Look, about a year ago at this time, I think I was probably on this show or another you know, show in the area, maybe it was a podcast, where I was kind of downplaying the expectations for the team, right? This is a team that was expected to finish last or close to last in its division and ended up making the playoffs and shocking the world, you know, quite frankly. Uh, thanks in part to Geno Smith and a young group on both sides of the ball that really started to perform well. John Schneider and Pete Carroll hit it out of the park last year in the offseason with the way they drafted. I think they've come pretty close to doing so again this year. And the bar has been raised once again. Gino, on a new deal. This team cannot surprise people anymore because mm. of what they did last year. But I also think there's a lot of opportunity in that division. You know, I mean, I don't expect anything really from the Rams. The Cardinals are going to be perhaps the worst team in football. And the 49ers have a quarterback thing that they got to deal with for a while with Brock Purdy. So, I mean, the Niners are going to be there. But I think this is a two-team division all of a sudden. And Seattle is going to be right there in the thick of it. It kind of takes us back to the old, uh, you know, uh, don't you ever talk about the best, you know, crab tree, that, that whole, uh, you know, era in Seattle and San Francisco. So uh, I'm really excited to see them play. Them and the Lions are like two of the teams I just can't wait to see because 
you know, you had a, a number of surprises last year. Some felt more authentic than others. Like the Giants to me right. did not feel as authentic. The Seahawks did. And I felt like kind of a fool for doubting Pete Carroll, but so many young guys contributed and played well. And I thought they had a really good draft this year uh, and, and just a positive off season. So I'm really excited to see them. And of course the Lions, you know, they get all the, the press from this kind of group of surprise teams from last year because of Dan Campbell and everything else. Um, but I want to see if they can live up to the hype. I think the Seahawks will live up to the hype and I think they'll be in it for the majority of the season. Uh, and probably try to make another run of the playoffs because they have a ton of young talent. It's really exciting to watch. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. And uh, as you said, would love to see the the Niners-Seahawks rivalry get back to what it was a few years ago. Nick, appreciate the time as always. Thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, that Nick. is Nick Shook of NFL.com. And uh, a little bit of breaking news from the NHL. Actually, significant breaking news. We'll hit the, uh, the founder here and everything. Sportsnet 650, breaking news. Uh, from the NHL, just a few minutes ago as we were talking to Nick, uh, Boston Bruins center Patrice Bergeron announcing his retirement. He releases a statement through the Bruins website, says, it is with a full heart and a lot of gratitude that today I am announcing my retirement as a professional hockey player. Bergeron, 38, was obviously on the one-year deal last year after there was some speculation he, he might retire. Him and Krejci come back for one last run. Not a massive surprise, uh, but still a big deal. Just a phenomenal, phenomenal hockey player. And there's a lot we can say about Patrice Bergeron. There's a lot to get into here, uh, what this means for the Bruins going forward, how they will react, all of that. But just focusing on the career the Bergeron's had, you know, the thing that stands out to me, I don't know that we'll ever see a player have a hold on an individual trophy quite the way <laughs> that he has had on the Selkie. He won it six times. That's really hard to win a major award six times in the NHL. He's also been a finalist six times. You have to go back to the 2010-2011 season, the last time Patrice Bergeron was not a finalist or a winner for the Selkie Award. Like, he is... They might have to rename that award the Bergeron. Honestly, like they might have to. That was how much he came to personify two-way defensive excellence uh, as a forward. And now at 38, announcing that uh, he's he's done. Over 1,000 games played, uh, almost 1,300 games played, over 1,000 points in the NHL. As I mentioned, the Selkie Awards. Uh, we all know the Stanley Cup victory here. And uh, no doubt, first ballot Hall of Famer hanging up the skates in Boston. Patrice Bergeron calls it a career. Heck of a career. Oh, I, I think prior to the pan, this would have been prior to the pandemic. It was five years ago. I, I, I would have had him as a first ballot. Yeah, Hall of absolutely. Famer, but there were still haters out there. And the last, if you're not convinced now that he is one of the best players of his generation, totally deserving of being a Hall of Famer, then I don't know yeah. which game you're watching. Uh, you know, the team's success has been there. The individual accolades have been there. He's had some years. Like he, he, this term I think gets overused in sports, but he is like the ultimate team player. Yep. Because he has those years where the Bruins need more offense, so he scores more. And then he has the years where he's going to be, and he always was, maybe the most defensively responsible mm -hmm. forward in the league. And so it was just you know the the prototype i think of what you would want uh leading your franchise and he's look he's he's put up some pretty impressive numbers uh even over the last few years but he's gone through some pretty significant injuries as well mm -hmm. uh, he got to the point in his career he's been playing for almost 20 years where 
now is the time. And yeah. Disappointing way to go out for him, I'm sure, yeah. given the way yeah. the regular season played out. That was the big question for me, was that was the way it finished for Boston in the playoffs going to motivate him to come back for one more year, right? Was was that going to convince him and Krejci, you know what, we can't – the regular season was incredible. We could go with that being our swan song, but can we deal with how it ended in the playoffs? And obviously, for Bergeron, the answer is yes. Bergeron's fascinating because – for a long time, he was their secret weapon, right? Because if you had asked someone in, you know, 2014, okay, list the top centers in the NHL, I don't know how long they would have gone before getting to Patrice Bergeron, but he was one. He it, was it, like the he, Barkov of his era. Yeah, it, he was never, but even better. He was never going to put up 100 points, but in terms of the impact on winning, I mean, he was just a tier behind, you know, Sidney Crosby, and you put him in there with Anze Kopitar, with Jonathan Taves, like he was right there uh, in terms of the impact he had on the team this text comes in uh, from rager the only bruin i've ever liked and i mean that's part of this too like just a universally respected and liked player i think it's very telling we all know the way canucks fans feel about the bruins and specifically <laughs> that era yeah. of the bruins i don't know that i've ever heard a canucks fan rip patrice bergeron he was a key player on the 2011 stanley cup championship team and yet what are you going to do? How are you going to be mad at the guy? How are you going to hate the guy? He's just so eminently likable. And there were enough players there on that were team enough. to direct your anger toward. <laughs> there were enough <laughs> other targets, certainly, on that team uh, that you didn't have to get mad at Patrice Bergeron. The player, the player that jumped to mind, the comparison that jumped to mind, and he's not quite in this tier, but just in terms of a guy who played his whole career in one place and was so instrumental to winning, and then the way things went once that player was retired was Nick Lidstrom in, in Detroit. Another guy who had a monopoly on, yeah. on an award. And again, Nick Lidstrom. Seven-time Norris. Yeah, Nick Lidstrom might be, you know, one of the top two or three defensemen of all time. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so I think you can make a very strong yeah. case top ten players ever. Yeah, Bergeron's not quite that, but... We talked so much about, like, the great Detroit Red Wings program. How much of that was Nick Lidstrom? You know what I mean? A lot of it was Nick Lidstrom. And then he retires, and the seams start to show. And that team all of a sudden is not what it once was. And playoff streaks start to fall. And all of a sudden, Ken Holland has to leave because, oh, you know, it's not quite the same with Nick Lidstrom. And I, I wonder if we're, you know, they still have Charlie McAvoy. They still have Brad Marchand. Pasternak. They still have David Pasternak. Yeah. There's still a lot of talent there. But losing a center, a two-way center of Patrice Bergeron's quality, still at that age. I mean, he just won the Selkie. He was just a, no doubt about it, first-line elite center for them. He is so good, I'm curious to see the domino effects on the Bruins. It, it and, and then, and that's I'm just talking on ice. That's before we even get to the fact that he is the captain, right? The role he had in setting the culture there, the role he had in helping to shape that team and what it means to be a Bruin, that is a monumental loss. And I'm really, really curious to see how it affects the Bruins in the standings as soon as this season, but in the in the years to come, too. Yeah, they already have cap problems that they have to navigate, right? Like, they've been linked to some names, uh, you know, this would not be a player that would go in and do the Patrice Bergeron thing, but they've been linked to someone like Mark Shifley, mm -hmm. who is much more offensively inclined, uh, but is a, a, a potential rental for a team that still has those pieces, right? Like it, it's hard. I think it's hard to go into next season yeah. with the names that you mentioned with Marsha and yeah. with McAvoy, with Pasternak, with whatever comes of their goaltending situation. That's still unsettled between Olmark and Swayman, mostly 
for cap reasons. But, you know, they've already moved off Taylor Hall. They've had to reshuffle some things there. Um, it, it makes me think a little bit of our discussion yesterday about Shohei Otani, where mm. it's not the same thing. We're not having the same exact debate about, hey, you move off of this guy. What does that mean for your direction? This is a guy who's played a full career, has had an incredible career, and will be recognized for that. But it does present a similar sort of reset option for yeah. a team um, that's going to have to figure out how to replace that player, not just on the ice, but the the, the overall tenor there. Because I, I do think you're right. The Nick Lidstrom point is a good one. Yeah, it's just, it's like Mark Shifley, good player. But if you think you're, quote unquote, replacing Patrice Bergeron with Mark Shifley, like that's, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. And that's no slight against Mark Shifley. It's just a testament to all of the things that Bergeron did at an incredibly high level for that franchise for so long. Again, if you're just joining us, uh, Patrice Bergeron announcing his retirement a few minutes ago from the NHL. The other thing that jumps to mind for me, uh, of course, with Patrice Bergeron, and again, when you, when you start talking about Hall of Fame and first ballot, there is absolutely no doubt he's a lock, and this is part of it. Incredible, incredible uh, history of representing Canada at the mm-hmm. international level and winning with Canada at the international level. Of course, two Olympic gold medals here in Vancouver and in Sochi, part of that incredible 2005 World Junior Team, along with Sidney Crosby, uh, won a world championship, even won a Spengler Cup in a lockout year. <laughs> like that, That's fine guys that have done all of that for me. Winter Olympics, World Championships, World Juniors, and a Spengler and Cup. Yeah. On top of it, uh, in the 2012 lockout season. And of course, you know, he was kind of, I don't know about surprise, but not somebody people would have thought of going on that uh, 2010 team. But of course, he has the chemistry and the history with Sidney Crosby, and they ended up playing a lot together at international tournaments. And again, like that says so much to me about Patrice Bergeron is that even in these international events where you're dealing with absolutely stacked rosters, who's the guy that ends up playing with Sidney Crosby? Who's the guy that ends up playing with the best player in the world and having success? It's Patrice Bergeron because he's that good and he's that smart. Perception's a funny thing, right? Because you're right, heading into 2010, it was the thing that was said about Bergeron being on that team was the Crosby connection. Yeah. And then you look back and you're like, hey, in 05 06, his seventh, second season in the league, he had 73 points. I know. He scored 30 goals. Like, <laughs> he had. Well, he was a bum. <laughs> he had yeah. seasons where that year, 29 or 09 10, he, you know, 52 points in 70 games. Like, this was not a player who was just there out of the, the, the charity and the grace of no. Hockey Canada and Sidney Crosby. Uh, he was a player who had, you know, such consistency and especially that that two-way play which can be difficult for people to to see I guess in the moment yeah and he was he was the one that was it was undeniable where you can watch the games and see the impact that he's having on the defensive side and not and, and also I think being one of those players in the way that we look at the game now with the transition play the mm. guy that can turn defense to offense. Mm-hmm. You you look at what's Quinn Hughes' best skill. You can look at the power play and his ability to pass, but ultimately it's turning defense into offense. And Patrice Bergeron's really close to the top of the list of the, the best players to do that. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And uh, this text comes in. Incredible level of play for so long. Look at Taves fall off. Uh, almost unparalleled length and and level of play. It's a good point. And as you said, you know, second season in the league as a 20-year-old, 31 goals, 73 points. 
Uh, last year in 78 games, 27 goals, 31 assists for 58 points. There's right? no fall off in his like, game. Like there's a he was basically <laughs> just came in at 20 years old was incredibly good and then at 38 was basically the same player. <laughs> I don't know if you guys noted it yet though. It was actually a day after his 38th birthday. Oh well, he makes this decision and he wears number 37. Maybe there's sort of connection there. I don't yeah, know. He's like, like, oh, is he a little superstitious? As soon as I'm older than my number, yeah. got to hang him up. <laughs> got to retire. Uh, we will take a break. Keep sending your thoughts in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. We'll talk a little footy up next. Manuel Veth of Transfer Market and Forbes talking a little MLS uh, plus Kylian Mbappe. Uh, what's going on there? Is he going to Saudi Arabia? We'll get into that next. It is Halford and Bruff, Sportsnet 650. The People's Show, your home for Vancouver summer sports talk. Subscribe to the podcast now. Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Halford and Bruff Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Israel Fair. Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. We are also coming to you live from the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 Five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Uh, as mentioned uh, in the last segment, Patrice Bergeron announcing his retirement. Text coming in 650-650. This one's saying, great player, but I hate that organization. Hopefully this will be another Boston team that crashes and burns. And wouldn't surprise me without Bergeron if uh, if that is what happens. Uh, we can get into that uh throughout the course of the show. But right now, as mentioned, to talk a little footy, uh, he covers MLS, covers the Bundesliga for Transfer Market, and Forbes, he is Manuel Veth. He joins us on the line now. Manuel, thanks for doing this. How are you? Good. How are you, Jamie? I'm doing long very well. No yeah, long time no yeah. speak. I'm, uh, I'm glad to have you on the show. There's a lot of different things going on in the world of, uh, of football and MLS and soccer, so I'm excited mm-hmm. to have you on. And obviously... You know, we talked about it a little bit on the show yesterday, but the big story right now in MLS is is Leo Messi and his debut uh, with Inter-Miami, scoring the free kick. I believe he'll play again tonight uh, against Atlanta, or at least Inter-Miami will play again tonight against Atlanta. I mean, I, I, how big a deal is this going to be, do you think, for MLS? Obviously, it's fantastic to get the viral moment and, and to see him score that goal and get all the attention, but long-term, what kind of impact do you think Messi's arrival will have on MLS? Well, that's that's a really, really good question. I think we have to go back in time and look at what David Beckham did for this league, right? And obviously, he's he's one of the masterminds behind bringing Lionel Messi to to Major League Soccer. And yeah, I, I think it all depends on how Inter Miami do on the fields, right? I mean, all nice and good that Lionel Messi is here and scores goals and fills stadiums but you know the club itself is in last place in, in the Eastern Conference and I think what what the, what really defined the Beckham legacy not, not over the first years where the Galaxy struggled a bit right but like towards the tail end is that he won back-to-back MLS Cups and, and really cemented his legacy in, in the league um, that way as well I mean you go to Dignity Health Sports Park today 
in Los Angeles, there's a statue of him in front, front of the stadium, right? And I, that's because he also won things with the club. And I think that is really the, the big important part here for, for Lionel Messi, that Inter Miami surround him with a team that can actually win something, right? And that he has the ability to, to, do, to win trophies um, and therefore then also, you know, be the sort of figure that David Beckham was previously for this league and maybe, you know, launch, launch the, the league into its next stage. Like you said, he's he's joining a team in Inter Miami that's at the at the bottom of the standings and yeah. beyond that awesome first game, uh, prob- maybe reality sets in over the the next little bit. But if if uh, we talked to to Franco Panizzo yesterday, who said that he thinks that there's still a chance that Inter Miami makes a run to the playoffs, and I'm sure that that would have mm-hmm. a significant impact. But what, what's your view on what the rest of this season means for Messi? getting acclimated to, to Miami and, and what they can do with the rest of, of what's left with this year? Well, I think they're quite busy signing more and more players, right? Um, trying to find the right pieces to surround him, surround him with quality so that, you know, as you said, maybe make that run to the playoffs. I, I, I think the math is quite steep. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it was something like winning 90% of all the game, remaining games, right? Um can they do that? Sure. Um, but will it actually happen? Mm, I'm not so sure. But I think for for the rest of the season, you know, you look at this League's Cup, for example, maybe they make a deep run in that, right? And the, the beauty of that is that you also play against Mexican um, competition. The Liga Mackeys is the, the most watched league in, in the United States, right? So that can already provide you with a big enough cultural impact that, you can say, oh, okay, well, we didn't maybe make the playoffs, but we won League's Cup, and that was a moment that really put the league on, on a solid footing against its main competitor in its own domestic market, right? So I think that is something that Messi can achieve this year. And then, of course, as you said, getting uh, getting used to this environment, the travel. Um, if he plays against Atlanta, then he will be playing on turf, right? Something mm. that he hasn't done in the, in the past. And of course, this this is going to be interesting for a lot of Vancouver rides. If he plays in Atlanta, we, we can expect that he will also play in Vancouver one day, right? So I think there's a lot there for him to do for the rest of the year, even if he doesn't make the playoffs. The turf thing is an, is an interesting point, right? Is that going to be – I know we've heard – questions about you know could MLS push teams to replace turf with grass is that kind of one of the less obvious examples of how Messi could have an impact on the league right just forcing teams to do something like hey if you want Messi to play in your building you're going to have to upgrade your facilities and and install real grass I mean it's a big topic in Vancouver right but yeah look at Atlanta for example they share the first they they share one of the best stadiums in the league with, with the Falcons and I don't know if they would wanna wanna do that because the, the Falcons need to play on, on on turf, right? And so it's it's a really it's a really interesting question because at the end of the day, the technology has gone quite a bit further. I, I would say the league might say, well, maybe you need to have the latest technology installed in your in your stadium. Um, maybe not do what Montreal do, for example, every year, right, where they where they have the, where they have the really dodgy field at the Olympic Stadium. So. I, it's going to be really interesting to observe, but I think also at the end of the day, the league will want Messi to play in all these markets, and I think Messi himself wants to as well because he gets a share of 
of the product, right? Which threw the Apple deal. So I, I can't really see him skipping out playing on in these conditions either. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens um, going down the road. Uh, while we're on MLS, I did want to ask you about the Whitecaps, who are you know solidly in a playoff position in the Western yeah. Conference, but they did lose a, a really key player, or at least they uh, sent out a really key player in Julian Gressel, who goes yeah. to Columbus. How is that going to impact the Whitecaps for the rest of the season? Yeah, that's. I, I think his impact on the field, you know, when you look at the raw numbers, he's, he's second in assists, right behind Ryan Gold. Um, he was, of course, gone for the Gold Cup because he's now a U.S. men's national team player. Um, I, I think that's a big piece that you're losing there, but it was always a risk that you had that he was not going to, to sign a new deal in, in Vancouver, right? I, I think he himself, he and his family gave it a try, um, at the end of the day, they decided you know this this wasn't quite it for them. They wanted to be further out east, but there's nothing really you can do, other than trying to maximize what you get out of it, right? And I think for a player whose contract is up, and, and it, look, there's there's a chance he's not signing in Columbus either, right? So you got you got a lot of money to to play around with and maybe bring in another piece, but at the same time, the, the time is running up, right? Transfer window closes early August for MLS, so. I think the Whitecaps have to do something to to lose those uh, to to replace those goals and assists. And you know, it's not just the goals and assists, the direct goals and assists, but also the you know the, the passes before the before the first assist and etc. So it's a big impact piece, and uh, Axel Schuster will have to be busy replacing it. Speaking of a player uh, on the European stage who could be on the move and a bit of a surprise, uh, it, it's mostly based on the the context around it, the whole Kylian Mbappe situation yeah. with the uh, interest from Saudi Arabia. He's obviously had this back and forth now with PSG, not just this summer, but going back uh, a couple of summers now about what his long-term future looks like. Uh, the Ooh. money coming out of Saudi right now is, is pretty incredible. We've seen a number of more veteran players from the Premier League go, uh, but if yeah. If Mbappe is really considering it, and by the reports today, it doesn't seem like that's his preferred destination, although PSG has accepted the the, 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 the sale because uh, the money is so ludicrous. What what do you make of this whole situation and in, in Mbappe's place in, in the, the, the Saudi league's summer that they've had, just throwing out crazy money for some of these players? Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's nation building, right? They're trying to they're trying to put themselves on footing in in a world where they can no longer sell oil and uh, football is always you know lots of countries have done this, um, whether it's Russia, China, um, Azerbaijan is another example where they where they use sport or football as a means to to, to diversify their economy, and I think that's what's happening here, right? Um, Kylian Mbappe, of course, this, this, this deal is uh, incredible. I mean, it's a 30 million euro transfer fee. It would break the, the Neymar transfer record, which was 222 million euros uh, from, from Barcelona to, to PSG back in the day, right? Um, his salary would be 400 million euros. Uh, to put this into North American perspective, that's the top 17 NBA players combined. Um <laughs> It's 
um, you know, and it's just for one year, and which that's part of the deal is that it would be just for one year, and then he would be free to go to Real Madrid for a free transfer, right? It, it would be a huge PR coup for 700 million euros, and apparently his family has now said that they would be willing to do it. Um, he himself has not made a decision, but his family said they would be willing to do it. I mean, this is generational wealth. You're setting up yourself, you're setting up your kids, you're setting, uh, setting up their kids. With, with with money that you know they can't even spend, but so it, I understand why players have to make this very difficult decision. And I think what also plays into this, and I found this really interesting, is that if Mbappe stays past August first, PSG actually have to pay him sixty million euros as a loyalty bonus, which <laughs> seems hilarious because he's been anything but loyal. But you know, it's it's such a it's crazy situation, and you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he does it. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't do it and holds out for Real Madrid in a free transfer. But, you know, the, the way the situation is right now, um, FIFA is going to cap a lot of, of player agents the, the amount of money that they can make as of, of October 1st. So that's why you see a lot of crazy deals going through now because this is kind of like the last summer where they can make money. And then all of a sudden you have Saudi come along, right, offering these crazy wages. So it's kind of the perfect storm that you know you have several situations come together and it's just creating this moment where lots and lots of money is spent by this league that no one else has been watching 12 months ago <laughs> the number and you said i think that's a great way to sum it up the top 17 nba player salaries combined Insane. it's it's tough to really wrap uh your head around it and we'll see if it actually does go through while we have you i know you're you're always uh, locked in on the bundesliga and on bayern munich as well i did just want to ask you about uh, alfonso davies he's obviously he's been there for a few years now and the team's had a lot of success he's been a very very good player uh for them what are the next steps as you see them for alfonso davies career and with bayern munich coming up here yeah, Bayern would like to sign him to a new contract. Of course, um, they had everything negotiated already, right? And then uh, Bayern fired Oliver Kahn and Hassan Salihamidzic as the CEO and the sporting director uh, on the final day of the season, thinking that they wouldn't win the title and they won it anyways because Dortmund faltered. But it, it kind of ended the, com- the extreme communication between the club and the agent. And, um, you know, listen, uh, Nick, Nick Jose has been very outspoken, both both on uh, Transfermarkt. Um, I've spoken to him, you know, he's gone on record for a lot of these things. He's spoken to Fabrizio Romano that it has been a little bit difficult, um, you know, and that he's told me that there is probably not going to be a decision now until the winter. I know Bayern Munich want to sign him to a new deal. Um, I know this is one of the highest priorities. I know that they, you know, negotiations are negotiations. The public talk is public talk. And um, I think both sides know what they have from one another. Um, uh, that is pretty much the latest. I also think that Bayern Munich are very much focused on signing Harry Kane at the moment, right? So, you know, anything else has kind of become secondary for them because of that as well. Um, you, you know, you see reports of, um, Dresden, the current CEO, um, Marco Neppe, the, the technical director, saying um, last minute in Munich to, to do negotiations with Tottenham. So I think that is kind of like the missing piece here. The moment they have wrapped up right. the, the King transfer, they they will move quickly and and make other decisions, right? And I think that's when when players like Alfonso Davies become the highest priority. 
Manuel, always appreciate the time and the insight. Uh, love hitting a bunch of different things in world football with you. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, that Manuel. is Emmanuel Veth of uh, Transfer Market and Forbes weighing in on killing Mbappe, a little bit Alfonso Davies at the end there in MLS as well. And the Mbappe thing, you know, as I said to Manuel, I love how he puts it there, like top 17 NBA salaries combined. The numbers are really unlike anything we've ever heard in professional sports. I did. This text comes in. Uh, people need to stop saying he'd be making generational wealth if he went to the Saudis. He's already making $70 million per year. If he doesn't already have generational wealth, he's been doing something really wrong. And it's a good point. Like, this is a level above generational wealth. This is like sovereign state wealth. You know what I mean? This is like the GDP <laughs> of a small country. You could buy several islands if yeah, you wanted to. Seriously, I don't even know. We don't even have a word to define what kind of wealth it is. I do think it's fascinating that it isn't a slam dunk that he's going to do it, right? Like, when you when you really think about it, that amount of money on the How table. How could anybody say no to one year? Make, like, 770 even if million. you hated, absolutely hated the job, how would you say no to that? And I think it's fascinating because it almost feels like it could end up being a misstep for the Saudis, right? Like, if you make that bid to a player and they turn you down, I think that kind of tells everyone where you, despite all the players you've you've invested and in, all the players you've brought in, it sends a really clear signal about where you stand in the pecking order of world soccer, right? Because you, I don't even know. with that money, you couldn't attract that it, player. They're in the early process. And I mean, Manchester City, that's in Manchester yeah. and in the Premier League, had some pretty infamous transfers that got rejected for Lionel Messi, incidentally, yes. where they would bid crazy amounts and get rejected and you know they were not deterred and they were you you have to build and I yeah. think I think maybe the Mbappe situation is the unique one because he is the great young player in the mm-hmm. game right now who's had success at the highest level in the World Cup and has been in France in a league that's not seen as one of the top nope. two or three and he is at that point in his career where the step to Usually, the way that you know narratively it's worked is to Real Madrid. Yeah, he's at that point in his career, and PSG because they're still sort of holding on to the idea that they can win the Champions League, which is what they've been trying to do yep. for a number of years, going back to you know, Zlatan Ibrahimovic being there and being the star player for their team was okay, the French League is maybe not as respected as the league in England or Spain or Germany or maybe even Italy. But if we can break through and win the Champions League, then we will be right up there with Real Madrid and Bayern Munich and mm-hmm. Manchester United and Manchester City. And so I don't think they want to give that up. I mean, that was the idea. They, they PSG just signed Leo Messi, mm-hmm. and that was they pay, they paid the record transfer fee for Neymar, right? We they are want, yes, they they yeah. pay for Neymar. We are going to win the Champions League, and now if their young French player is going to take that step in his career. They're holding that back. They don't want mm-hmm. to let go of, hey, you're, you, we're just going to let you go to Real Madrid. But when the Saudi club is offering that kind of money for the sale price, then they are what saying, are okay, do? well, go go there for a year. Um, it's It's fascinating. And it is a good reminder, the fact that it isn't just a rubber stamp done deal, that he's taking it and saying, yep, okay, I'm going $770 million for a year, let's do it, and then I'll go to Real Madrid after that. It's a good reminder that, yes, these players, they're motivated by money, obviously, hugely, and they move for money, but they're also motivated by competition, 
right? Like that, the money isn't the only thing that would be unprecedented here. This would also be an absolute top player in his prime, basically taking a year off from elite competition. Like, I know they've bought a lot of players, but it's not elite competition. There's not anything close to elite competition. And the reason these guys historically want to go to Real Madrid, it's not just because Madrid's going to pay them. That's part of it, of course. It's also, they want to win the it's Champions the League. They want to win the Champions League. They want to be at, they want to compete at the very the highest the sport. level. And if he goes to Saudi Arabia, you're nowhere close to that. You're taking one year out of a career that you hope is going to be long, but in soccer, you don't know. You don't know how many years you're going to have at that absolute peak of competitiveness, and you're you're punting a year, and yeah, you're getting a whole lot of money in return, but I think it's very, very telling. It tells us a lot about how much these guys value that competition, and as you say, that glory that comes with certain clubs and certain competitions and leagues how much they value that. Because if that wasn't a factor, he'd be on a plane to Saudi Arabia right now. You know what I mean? It'd be like, okay, well, if that's the dollar figure, let's go. But the fact that it would mean not getting to compete on the biggest stage, not being in the Champions League Mm -hmm. for a year, that might actually trump the incredible amount of money um, that he's being offered, which is really remarkable when you think about it. The other, (laughs) I thought it was really funny yesterday seeing all of the NBA guys tweeting. Yeah. <laughs> LeBron being like, yeah, I would go. Giannis, hey, I look like Mbappe. Take me for that amount of money. Draymond asking if they're getting into to basketball. Like, it's an interesting thought. And somebody, Marcus and Gibson's text in, will we ever see the KHL try and poach stars like the Saudis are doing in soccer? I think Russia is a much different. It's the economics. Yeah. As, as Manuel alluded to. There, yeah. there, there's an undercurrent here. Uh, of of global economics and, and sociopolitics oh, stuff yeah. that is at play. But if you are, and the reason soccer is kind of the logical first step is because it's the global sport, right? And it has the biggest footprint. And I think there's also the culture. Players are used to changing leagues and fans understand that more so than certainly in the NBA uh, or the NHL or world hockey. But I do think it's an interesting comparison, right? Like, you know, LeBron James wants to play with uh, his son, and there, we can actually mention some news about Bronny. But, like, let's say LeBron James at 40, if Saudi Arabia had a startup basketball league and they said, we'll pay you $500 million to come play in our startup basketball league. Like, that's I don't think that's out of the question, right? Mm-hmm. The question for me is going to be, do any of these endeavors get to a point where it's not just the big name at the end of their career? You know what I mean, right? Like, that's why the Mbappe one would be so significant. It's a guy in his prime. Basketball, I can see them going down that road with guys at the end of their careers, right? Kevin Durant in a couple years, LeBron. Are you ever going to be in a position where somebody's a free agent in the NBA and they're weighing, you know, should I sign with the Lakers or should I sign in Saudi Arabia? That, like, that is, it's so much harder to get to that point. And I think the Mbappe thing is kind of illustrating that. It's You can pay people. But can you get them to really want to be there in the prime of their careers? For sure. And uh, things have opened up, man. Like, this is not the the NBA or the, you know, even, I mean, just look at, you just look at soccer and the way that that's been so accessible to people. Mm-hmm. And you can, it, it, it's unprecedented. And they, I, I, you know, I won't believe it until I see it. But those avenues are out there from, uh, the ability to reach an audience, like being in Saudi Arabia because of of the internet and with apps and yep. streaming platforms and things like that, you know, it, it's very much the if you build it, they, they will, will come. come. Yep. And that this is 
by far the the most out there version of that bet. Because Emmanuel said it. We saw this with China before in soccer, and it was guys like Nicholas Anelka mm-hmm. later in their careers. And we've seen some of the players go to to the Middle East, like Xavi and, and Andres Iniesta, ultimately ending up there on these big deals. But this is easily the biggest push that, that we've ever seen. And the, the Mbappe one would be... I mean, this came up often. You, you talked about you know how embarrassing this might be if Mbappe doesn't go. Well, Tiger Woods turned down a lot of yep. money for live golf. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the that's the comparison that I'm looking at. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, six fifty, six fifty is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We're gonna do what we learns in about half an hour. We don't have a ton in the inbox right now, so we need you to uh, do our job for us and give us something to talk about for the last segment of the show. So hit us up hashtag WWL. What you learned in the last twenty four hours of sports and we'll get into them at 8 30 uh, up next on the show he is the new head coach and gm of the vancouver warriors of the national lacrosse league this was a big hire for the warriors kurt miloski coming over uh from the calgary roughnecks joining the warriors we will talk to kurt next about the move and what's next for the warriors that's coming up on halford and bruff sportsnet 650